0: Hello, it is Matt Weaver with Bible Truth Project, and today I have a special guest who I'm excited to interview. Uh, His name is Dr. Doug Hamp, and um, he wrote an interesting book that I just uh, finished reading called Corrupting the Image 2. It's the second part in a series, and he's actually currently writing a third book. And uh, He's, it's a very interesting material that I think is very relevant to the day that we live in to, to understand uh, the ancient world, the connections to the ancient world, um, that often probably affect us more than we even realize. So I'm excited to have him on the show, and um, I think we're going to learn some really exciting things from Dr. Hamp. Uh, Dr. Hamp is, uh, is an author, and he's also a pastor of a church in Colorado and uh he wrote a book it got my attention a few a few weeks ago he was on a show uh, actually actually a podcast with derek gilbert and i listened to the podcast and it it um it it brought a memory up of something that happened some time ago and we're going to get into that later but uh thank you so much uh for agreeing to do this doug i i know that you're busy and and you've got a lot of projects and things going on but i appreciate you taking the time to uh come on here and talk about what you've written.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So let me just go back a little bit. 15 years ago, and this is kind of how this whole thing kicked off, and this is why I felt it would be interesting to have a conversation. 15 years ago, my dad, um, who is a pastor of the church uh, that I go to, had a vision, and um, it was a it was on his 50th, close to his first 50th birthday. He had gone through a period of tremendous travail. Uh, It seems that in his life, about every 10 years, he has a a period of travail as God is taking him into the next season of his ministry. But in this season of travail, um, one night he had a vision. And this vision was, was, extremely dramatic it was he doesn't he's not had a lot of visions in his life he's had a few but but this one was the most dramatic uh that he's had and uh, i remember him like relaying it later even years after literally he would like in some ways almost start shaking but basically the vision was that he saw the glory of god and he saw the glory as just these rays that were so powerful. I mean, the energy was at a level that literally could pierce anything. And it was, it's just indescribable. And basically, and there's a lot to it. I'm not going to get through the whole thing. I'm just, but there was one, one part of this that piqued my interest. I mean, the conversation I had uh, heard with you and Derek is as he, as he would walk, the glory would shine. And he, he saw a building that was, that was being built, but it wasn't finished yet. There were still a section that needed to be completed. And as he walked, he saw the glory shining around him and he saw this building. When he stopped, all of a sudden the glory disappeared and he saw bleachers that were propped up in front of that building. And it was full of people, conservative people, uh, from just all sorts of different, you know, denominations, et cetera, that were on those bleachers covering up this hole in the side of this building. And as he then he continued to walk, the glory would shine, the bleachers would disappear, the people would disappear, and he'd see the building as it is again, unfinished. And he, he stopped several times, and every time he would stop, the glory would stop. Every time he'd start walking again, the glory would would start again. And ultimately, he came up to the corner of the building, and there was a huge cornerstone, and he leaned against that. And as he leaned against it, the glory, the glory continuously shone. Now, there was a lot of... Um, messaging, I guess, that the Lord was showing him for the season that he was in, in that time. But what piqued my interest is that he describes actually seeing um, what we would call Satan or Lucifer, uh, which is a bad translation, I understand. Uh, But he sees him, and this is what piqued my interest. He described him, and just for lack of, um, I guess, terms or vocabulary, understanding, trying to describe what he saw, he described him looking like a giant ostrich, and hmm. the color, his color, he just says is like oozing green, like toxic, just venomous toxins coming out of him. I mean, it was just he, the picture he describes is just absolutely toxic, but just oozing this 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 toxin. But he described him looking kind of like an ostrich, but that was the closest thing. There was nothing really that he could, you know. Um, kind of relate it to. and the most striking thing was that under his wings he had two huge treasure chests which were just absolutely loaded with the like precious gems, jewels, gold, silver, all sorts of precious things. and the Lord showed him that this is what he is stealing from my people, that that the enemy is absolutely stealing all sorts of treasure and gems and jewels that I have. Uh, you know, that I want to give my people, he's taking these things and, Hmm. um, but all that to say that when the conversation, you just, you go and you talk about this Anzu bird, um, Mm -hmm. and it immediately was like, I wonder if that's what dad saw so i just googled it really quick and looked at some different artists renderings and renditions etc and i found one that a modern artist had done and i sent it to him and he said is this similar to what you saw and he said yeah absolutely that is that is very close to what he saw so from that point now now you had my curiosity so i got your book (laughs) read the book (laughs) And it was absolutely, you know, it's, it's an amazing piece, you know, I've, I've, uh, Thank you. I've been to Israel half a dozen times, I've not spent the time as that you have, but I've been there half a dozen times. Uh, I've been to Jordan a couple times, I've been, you know, Egypt, that stuff too. And, um, and some, something that has hit me is that many times in the West, we're very ignorant of the worldview of the region. So for instance mm-hmm. we know Abraham came from Mesopotamia he comes out of you know the Sumerian kingdom or Sumer and uh, the mythologies that originated from that kingdom literally influenced almost every religion on the face of the earth but it's pivotal because in that time frame God calls Abraham out of that and chooses israel for his people and his nation the rest is history so i'm going to kind of step back now and let you fill in but i don't know what 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 are your thoughts on on what i told you about the
1: uh, the anzu i mean i do not claim to be an interpreter of dreams uh i find daniel and joseph are better at that than i am oh. um i can barely understand my own dreams but you know it's fascinating you know that uh that he would have such a a vision um and that you know this this bird just so people understand you know i, I personally wouldn't call it a bird uh it looks yeah. more like a lion to me with wings yeah. but but that's what they called it you know they called it the onzu bird and so you know we have to go with that but you know there, there's so much happening behind the scenes on this spiritual level that i think you know it's it's really easy for us to kind of you know, go to church, we go in, we do our thing, we talk about Jesus, and we leave, right? And nothing wrong with that, but there's so much more to the story. You know, the Bible is just replete with information about the spiritual realm. But, you know, you have to kind of, you know, you've got to thread your needle as you're going through the Bible to, to find these things and then to, to collate them so that you can really have a, a better picture. And I'll tell you, it blew my mind when I started going back. And I started with a question, why would uh, the book of Revelation refer to Satan as the great dragon? And like, okay, he did, but why? Like, why is that such a term? Right. And and then as I started looking into these things, and I found that the woman that rides the beast, well, she's there in color right. in uh, the ancient Near East. I mean, bold, brilliant colors, and you see the beast Right. which, uh, you know, so there's one, and I have it at the beginning of my book uh, of this this woman who's on the back. Uh, I don't know if people can kind of see that, but yeah, yeah it's hard to see. But um, so that woman that's on the back of that beast, that is Inanna, that's the queen of heaven. And the beast that she's on is the Anzu bird. And uh, when you're talking about having venom and all this different stuff, well, that's exactly what this, Anzu bird, this winged lion, this chimeric creature has, is it's spewing out uh, this, this venom, this toxic venom out of its mouth. And, uh, and so that's what the ancient world was calling a dragon. You know, we sometimes think of the Walt Disney kind of dragon, you know, or something like that. And that's a variation on a theme for sure. But, you know, the, the dragons back then were a bit less dinosaur and more chimera, right? And You know, and and really when you start looking at the description of the the cherubim in the book of Ezekiel, right, because Satan was one of the cherubs, right? He was one of the cherubim. Uh, He was the anointed cherub. And so we see these four different faces. And in in Hebrew, the word for face is panim. Uh, So the, the word face is actually plural. So you have faces, not a face. Right. And that seems foreign to us. But when you start to think about it, you're like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I have tons of faces. Right. right. Got my happy face. I got my sad face and all these different things. And so I wear lots of faces every day. And when you start looking at the, the different descriptions of what Satan has looked like through the literature, you begin to see that he has the face of a lion. He's got the face of a bull, the face of an eagle and the face of a man. And they're all more or less summed up in this Anzu bird. And then as the iconography evolved over the centuries, we find that he then goes from being this winged lion to then being a bit more of a centaur, uh, still the same basic creature. And then he has two heads, one, the head of a man, and then the other one, the head of a lion. And, and it's, Astounding when you look look at and compare Revelation chapter nine of the creature that's going to come out of the abyss, it's exactly the same as Nergal, who is the god of the underworld, which is yet another manifestation of Enlil, who is Satan. Right. So all roads lead back to him. It it really is amazing.
0: Well, I had, you know, this last winter, there was a group of us from church, uh, all that have been to Israel, just just wanting to study more the prophetic word and getting into it. In a, in a deeper way. And going through that material again, and then when I was reading in your book, the different things that it describes, um, you know, as far as making the connections to the images, you know, it, it's so, uh, to me, it's so clear. The connections that you draw to these ancient Mesopotamian creatures, I mean, there it is. Like you, you talk about the queen of heaven, I think uh, Inanna, and it, it's, you know, she's represented in many different cultures, different ways, but it's the same mm-hmm. spirit, I guess you would say, um, or, or Enlil, you know, gets translated, etc. It goes into the, a lot of different faces, and then the ultimate seed, if you will, uh, which Genesis 3.15, which is a, kind of a, you know, the, the really original prophetic uh, verse in Scripture where God really lays out what it's all about. that that there'll be a conflict between seeds and ultimately the ultimate seed of humanity will fight against the ultimate seed of uh satan and you know will be overcome that way but you just dig into some of this material and bring so much clarity to it you know i've i've read you know dr heiser's works on you know a lot of his books and different things Uh, i even gone back and uh, you know, two years ago, I had an atheist friend who wanted me to read some Sitchin just because he thought that would be helpful. Uh, and, you know, and before that, I've read Flood Legend stuff, Epic Gilgamesh, that sort of stuff. So I was, you know, semi-familiar, but nobody really had put this imagery together. And when you overlay it with what prophecy is describing like for instance Daniel the four-headed beast coming out and or revelation for instance all the different images you can actually show pictures of what these things look like and I've never seen really anybody do that before and I'm sure they have I just not seen it it was astounding to me
1: thank you it was astounding to me as well (laughs) you know um it's one of these things that you sort of have an idea of where you're going but you don't really know until you start on the journey and um and, and that's, you know, I had this a basic sense that I might find something back there. But when I when I again, when I really started looking at Ishtar, the queen of heaven, yeah. and I'm like, wait, I know that there's, you know, this iconography from back then. And then I just started uncovering all these other things. And I'm like, my, my mind is blown right here, you know, and um, and it was amazing how. I, I discovered that Enlil, so just so people understand, Enlil is the name of Satan. Okay, where do we get this? You actually find it in, um, in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 14, where it says, Oh, Lucifer, son of the morning, right? That's what we typically have in English. Yep. But the Hebrew there is Helel. And Helel goes back to the uh, Akkadian, Elil which then goes back to the Sumerian Enlo. Now, for people that have no idea what I'm talking about, Sumerian or Sumer is the same as Shinar in your Bible. So if you go to Genesis chapter 11, where it talks about how Nimrod Well, 10, how Nimrod uh, established his kingdom. And then, of course, in chapter 11, you have the Tower of Babel, right? All of that was done in the land of Shinar. So Shinar just means the two rivers, uh, Shnenot, uh, which then becomes Sumer in the Sumerian language. And then, of course, it becomes uh, Sumerology and all this other stuff. So that is the cradle of civilization. That's as far back as we can go with written history. And there's a lot of it. And this, according to the Bible, is where it started out. So Satan established his kingdom there. And that is where he established the Tower of Babel, obviously, and then also the false religion that came with it, right? Babel. I mean, this is where it all goes back to. And as I was, I I taught through the book of Revelation about one and a half years ago. And, you know, it, it, I kept wondering, like, why are these symbols here? Why do we have these weird symbols of a woman riding a beast, you know? I've heard that it was talking about the Roman Catholic Church or that it's New York City. Yeah, and, sure. I, you know, I thought, well, I think they're part of the problem. Okay, I'm not saying that they're innocent, no. but I don't think they're the they're, they're not the sum total of what we're talking about, right? There, there's much more. And it wouldn't make sense that, you know, John's having a vision and he's somehow seen New York City. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, so I went back and I'm like, all of the answers pretty much are found in the area of Mesopotamia, which uh, have different names, ancient Near East, Mesopotamia, Sumer, all this different stuff, but it all goes back to there. So when we're going to interpret these symbols, and there are many symbols in the book of Revelation, we have to go back and first understand what it means. And I use the analogy of a, of a, a, a a traffic light, right? So, for everyone who's who's uh, been raised in a place where they have cars, and if you've taken driver's ed, you should know that a red light means stop, green light means go, and yellow light. Well, we're still deciding if that means go faster or slow down, right? But uh, but we but we know these symbols because we've grown up with these symbols, and you know we're like, well, red light, of course, it means stop, obviously. But to somebody who did not grow up in a civilization with cars, they'd be like, what do you mean a red light means stop? I don't get it. But to us, it's very, very obvious. And, and so we, once we understand the definition of the symbol, then we can, then we can act upon that red light. It goes from being, being just this, this um, abstract symbol to now being very, something concrete where I have to do something about this. And that's the same thing in the book of revelation is that yes, there are many symbols and without the proper Definition of what these mean, we're kind of like, I don't get it. But once we are able to define them, and we can often find those in the Bible itself, uh, and other times, of course, we can go back to the ancient Near East and figure out what these things mean, then we're able to go in and plug these in and say, oh, that's what you're talking about, right? We're not talking about the Vatican or New York City. The woman that rides the beast is Inanna, and she was uh, birthed, if you will, yep. at the Tower of Babel or the whole Babylonian system. And God is wrathful against that system, right? right? That is a system that has been around with us since the days of Babel and it has proliferated. It has morphed and evolved throughout the entire world. There's not one place that I know of that does not have the influence of these symbols and these gods and in one form or another it has gotten around. And so God is going to deal with that system. And then also, I believe he's going to deal with the city itself in the days to come.
0: First time I had heard, you know, this type of image, or even though it wasn't, um, you know, uh, how'd you say it? I guess the person introduced this concept to me was a guy named Michael Rudin. I don't know if you ever know the name or not, but this is probably I 10, do. <laughs> 10 years ago, etc. Yeah. So yeah. just one of the things that was like eye opening to me, I mean, when you get into studying Israel and you all of a sudden you see the paganism and the conflict between these two realms, you know, the kingdom of darkness, kingdom of light all of a sudden, you know, you're faced with some very uncomfortable things because you are taught a certain way, you grew up a certain way, you understand the world in a certain worldview, and all of a sudden you recognize there really kind of is black and white in this world. There is a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness, and there really isn't a middle ground. Um, The source point is actually kind of clear. There is a source point of good and there's a source point of evil, there's a source point of... uh, Truth and deception, I guess. And um, so in our travels, subsequently, one of the like hugely eye-opening thing for me was like going to the city of Rome and 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 seeing what counterfeit looks like. See Rome, Rome, mm-hmm. you know, they try to proclaim themselves as being the eternal city. Well, they're not the eternal city. Jerusalem is the eternal city. you know, and and just little things like, you know, they built the city of bricks but put a facade of stone in. And if you go to Jerusalem, you know, it's all stone originally. It's <laughs> it's strange. little nuances of facade versus reality. And sometimes when you're dealing with these things, we don't know the origins of what we deal with and how it has permeated um, Christendom as a whole. It, we just don't recognize it. Like, you know, you look at the Pantheon, for instance, you go in there and you, Wow, this is a really nice building. Oh, and by the way, look at all the saints in the niches. Why are the saints in the niches? You know, the Pantheon, the Pantheon was built to house the full all the deities of the Roman uh, or Roman paganism back in the day. Now you've replaced mm-hmm. that with saints. So all of a sudden, you're merging these two systems, if you will, into that. Now, only reason I bring that up is because it was illuminating to us as I've. I've You know, study this sort of thing to recognize that there is a fight between two systems and ultimately goes back to Sumer. If you really trace it all, it all goes back there. And um, I think that for people that are really wanting to study and understand what's happening, it's, it's vital that they understand that context and what God was doing from that very beginning.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the things I really bring out in the book is that there was this battle going on and, you know, a huge uh, buzzword is authority. So, you know, sometimes people have asked, well, you know, if God was going to send Jesus to die for our sins, why didn't he just do it immediately right after Adam and Eve blew it? Well, because Satan's not an idiot, right? So the whole thing, it's, you see, you have to understand that, that God is, omnipotent. He's all powerful. And Satan is not all powerful, right? He, he's he's powerful. He's definitely more, more powerful than we are, but he, he's no match for God, right? If they were to sit down and have an arm wrestling match, God would win. No question about it. So Satan, again, he's not an idiot. He, he doesn't think that he can come to a wrestling match with God and somehow win. What he did is, you know, God basically creates the world, put Satan in charge as the steward of the world. But he but he gives the world to Adam and Eve, right? They're the heirs of the world. And Satan didn't like this arrangement too well. He wanted to be, you know, the top dog. He wanted it to be his. And so when God gave the dominion to Adam and Eve, basically you can think of it like Satan going over and say, hey, little boy, Uh, Can I hold that key for you? Can I hold the dominion for you? And Adam's like, sure. Okay. (laughs) And and once Satan had it, he's not going to give it back. Now, he knows that God is righteous. God will never tell a lie. That is the one thing God cannot do. He cannot lie. He will not lie. He will not violate his own righteousness. That's against his very character to do such a thing. And trust me, Satan is standing on the word of God, right? He is believing that God will do what he said, that God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent. Satan is standing on that promise because that's what gives him his power is that he has authority. So God makes the world, gives it to Adam. Then Adam foolishly gives it to Satan. All right. So now Satan's like, hey, I've got the keys. In fact, what we find in the Ancient uh, Near East is that Enlil held the tablet of destinies that gave him authority over the affairs of man. It gave him the ability to decree fates. This is a big thing, and he makes a big thing about it. In fact, I talk about in the book this thing called the Akitu Festival. I'll tell you, when I discovered this, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. This is crazy, right? But in the Akitu festival, uh, the earthly king would dress up and pretend to be uh, either Enlil or or often it would be his son, Ninurta, uh, whose name means Lord of the Earth. And so he would would pretend to be... um, uh, ninurta, and then he would bring the good news. That's the word that they use, the busurat salmi, which is the, the good news of peace. <laughs> I'm like, again, this is crazy. because It's the same phrase that we see in Hebrew, uh, the busurat shalom. So here you have the same phrase that's being used. And the good news is that Ninurta had killed Anu, who is the creator God, and he's bringing this good news to Enlil. And you're like, wait, why would this be good news? Well, because they don't like the creator God. That's the whole point. They don't like him. And so Enlil then says, look, I have the Anu ship. I have the power and the authority of Anu, the creator God. He's dead. And now I have his authority and his power. Those are now vested in me. And then I will give those to whoever I want. And then that's called the Enlil ship. And so then Enlil then gives this to Ninurta. And Ninurta is said to be his son. All right. And, and that's a whole nother story about Nimrod. But, but we see in this festival that Enlil is, is basically bragging. He's like, look, I got God over a barrel. You know, look, I'm not the creator God. I never said I was. But I pulled a fast one on the creator God. And now I have the tablet of destinies. I have the the thing that gives me authority over the earth. And what's amazing is that when Jesus came, he did not challenge that statement. Satan took him up onto a high mountain and said, look, all this stuff has been delivered to me. All these kingdoms, they're mine. And I can give them to whoever I want. If you'll just bow down, I'll give them to you. Glad Jesus didn't do that. That was really good. But Jesus wasn't like, you know, whatever, Satan, come on. We both know that you don't have such a thing. Jesus did not challenge it at all. And uh, because it's true. In fact, we see in many places where he talks about the God of this age, the God of this world, right? He's got nothing on me. You know, he's going to be judged. And all this different language that Jesus uses to speak about, but the only way that satan could be judged because he had the keys of of death and sheol death and hades the only way was to overcome him and beat him at his own game so if if satan is the god of the dead or god of death then you have to beat death in order to overcome satan yeah. and that's exactly what jesus did i mean this whole thing is a cosmic duel between God and Satan. Again, it's not that Satan has equal power, but he usurped God. And that was one of his favorite titles. He's the usurper mm-hmm. and that he he stole the authority. But once he had that authority, God couldn't just, you know, lightning bolt him and then give me that authority back. It doesn't work that way. That would be unjust and God is not unjust. He's righteous. And so in order to get back what that which had been um, forfeited by Adam, he then has to become a son of Adam and he has to die. You know, again, not all this was absolutely clear from the beginning, right? All Satan knew is that there was this prophecy of doom that I will cause enmity between you and the woman between your seed and her seed. You will strike his heel and he will crush your head. So this was, hanging over satan for thousands of years he doesn't know when when this seed of the woman this promised one is going to show up right so he's like man i better get ready i better make sure that i've got my my game ready to go and i think this is why we see the uh incursion of the nephilim right satan's trying to get ready he's trying to prepare and to make sure that his reign of terror will continue indefinitely, right? Again, he knows that God is smart, right? He, he knows that he, he's not messing with some weakling and that if God has said that he's going to reclaim the earth then he has real intentions to reclaim the earth. So Satan has to then somehow cement his rule in the earth, right? He, he does this whole thing with the Nephilim, that goes down the drain. And so then after the flood, he, he starts again with just one person and that is with Nimrod. And, and through Nimrod and the Tower of Babel and all this, this is where we get the, this false religious system. And why do we need a false religious system? Well, it's just like going fishing, right? If you just put a hook in the water, yeah, the fish probably won't bite, right? They're not absolutely stupid, but if you lure them, If you lure the fish with something shiny or a worm, then they're likely to bite onto that hook. And once once they've bitten, you don't need the lure anymore, right? Because now you've got them. And and so the lure is the woman that rides the beast. What is this woman? Well, she represents lust. It, It could be sexual lust. It could be lust for money, lust for fame, lust for power. You name it, it doesn't really matter. Right. But whatever you're lusting for, Satan's like, I've got just what you're asking for. Right. And the woman represents that. But what is she riding? She's riding the beast. So who's really in control? Is it the, the rider or the one who she's riding? Well, you, you'd think it's the rider. But we see in Revelation 17 that the beast is going to hate her and is going to burn her with fire because once. The, the, the beast or the antichrist finally has the world hooked and we can't get away. Absolutely. And that that's in volume three, I'm working on that, but that will be where it's like, okay, I've got you. You're hooked. You can't get away. We don't need this woman anymore. We don't need the lure because now you're mine. Now you've got, you guys have taken the mark of the beast. You can't get away, right? You're mine forever. And, uh, and so then he'll eventually get rid of the woman. But for now, he needs to convince us or, you know, to lure us into following this false system so that we become his slaves. And unfortunately, he's doing a pretty good job, sadly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a tremendous amount of material and a tremendous um, truth that is definitely, definitely present even to this day. I mean, we look at like the um, the, the powers. I mean, just right now, I mean, with COVID and coronavirus and all that sort of thing. You know, how you can take a small situation and leverage it for, I guess you could say, good and evil. Um, it, it's given the opportunity. Satan will use whatever he can to do as much evil as possible. So let's let's get a little bit. So Mount Hermon, this uh, Mount Herman connection and uh, Nimrod or Ninurta, um you kind of, I guess there's a lot of different names there. So there's you know Nimrod, Ninurta, Hercules, Heracles, all basically you're tying to being the same person. and then the Mount Herman event, which is uh, Genesis 6 and, and uh, First Enoch as well. Um, mm-hmm. in your mind, and you also, you talked about this, uh, inscription and this is kind of a unique, uh, discovery that you had, uh, written about in your book, as far as connecting the, uh, what's it called? Uh, the stone. I can't think of the name of it. The, the stone that was found talk, talk to us about that a little bit.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it's just the Mount Hermon inscription. I yeah, don't yeah, okay. know that it has a name necessarily, but, uh, so this, this inscription, um, probably from around, well, somewhere it's a Greek inscription. Let's put it that way. And it was found in 1869. I think it was by Charles Warren. Okay. And uh, so then it was taken to the British museum and um, he translated it, the British museum translated it. And then later on George uh from Harvard university translated. And, you know, I had kind of been hearing about this inscription and I was like, I really want to see it for myself uh, because you know, where is the Greek? What does it actually say? So I finally was able to trace it back to George Nicholsburg, And he said that his translation was, according to the command of the great and holy God, those taking an oath proceed from here, or these t- proceeding from here, take an oath. And I thought, well, that's interesting, but why would I say holy God, right? It doesn't make sense because the holy God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he certainly did not tell them to come down who are they well if you look at in uh first enoch there is a record there of these uh, you know roughly 200 angels led by uh some Yaza who came down and they took an oath uh, which is what the the mountain means hermon is a cherim. it means to imprecate yourself or to mm-hmm. take an oath saying i'm gonna do this or else right and and th- and that's what that's how the mountain was named uh, is this whole idea of an oath. And, and so we see this going back a very long way. And so this, this inscription was very interesting. And I, I, I went back, I looked at the Greek and I, I was struck by the words and holy are not in the text. And I thought this is weird because I know that George Nicholsburg is an excellent scholar. So I would never you know, call into question his, his scholarship. And yet I kept looking at this thing and I'm like, this doesn't make any sense because it just doesn't say that. And so I discovered two words. Uh, The first one is bow, which I trace back to be a prefix meaning bull or ox. And that is very much in line with what we see as far as the descriptions of who Satan is from the cherubim, right? One of the faces of an ox. Uh, Then we see, uh, numerous d- depictions of Satan as a bull. Uh, he's also called the bull. We see it in m- many writings that he's known as the bull, the bull of heaven, et cetera. Uh So I was like, and I felt comfortable with that. And then the other word uh, was this word batios. And I was like, I mean, I just looked everywhere. I looked and looked and looked and every lexicon i could think of every website i could think of you know every scholarly journal i could think of nobody had anything on this word batios i think this is really crazy but then i found it i did find it and it was in uh in in a grotto in a cave in southern italy and I, i was just like wait this word i've only found it two places in the entire world and Um, Why would it be on top of Mount Hermon and then also in a cave in Italy? Well, you know, long story short, I I discovered that it's related, it it was an epithet for Zeus. And what was interesting is that the scholars in Italy, they thought it must be some kind of a a local epithet, right? So, um, but you can only have a, a local epithet if you have a place, right? Uh, So, you know, if you have the Dallas Cowboys, you first have to have Dallas, right? You can't just have the Cowboys. You've got to have the Dallas Cowboys and that's how it works, right? So we cannot have uh, Zeus Batios if there's no city known as Batios and there wasn't. I looked at the maps and all the literature and there was nothing there. So what I I finally discovered is that this word, the word bat or bad, B-A-D, is actually a hidden symbol for the name Enlil. Uh, so when you start looking at uh, cuneiform, cuneiform, uh, a lot of the symbols have their own name, just like in English we have the letter W. But that you know that's a name. Nobody says W or H, right? We don't say uh, you know H H. Hello, right? We say hello, right? But the name of the letter is H and and the same thing with W. So what we're talking about here is this, this ancient symbol that has a name and you don't pronounce the name, but this name then became a uh, a syncretism. It became, it became a, a common symbol that the scribes were using to describe Enlil, to describe uh, Dagon and the other uh, the other, um, um, you know, shared features that you have, the other aliases of of Satan in the ancient world. So I, I got kind of excited about that. And for me, what this does is it shows, it really proves that here you have a, a Sumerian loan word in a Greek document talking about Satan, right? So this isn't just some whatever kind of thing, but it, it proves that this has to be talking about Satan because this word exists in no other place, right? The only explanation is that it was taken from Sumerian. It was then Hellenized and it was put into this inscription and the scribes understood who they were talking about, but nobody else would have understood who they were talking about. And so Satan was the one that gave the command to the angels to come down on Mount Hermon and to then begin this whole process of making these nephilim, yeah. <laughs>
0: and that's in the nephilim part, basically in the book, you kind of cover that it was the it was kind of a plan to create, uh, just as me, you know, paraphrasing here, but basically create um, uh, bodies or, or something that they could then inhabit and express themselves in the visible world, is because they are locked away, if you will, in the invisible. Uh, or unseen.
1: Yeah. Um, it's like the movie the Avatar, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, post, yeah.
0: And, and post, and post-flood, you would kind of hold that a similar thing happened with Nimrod or would you consider that more a demonic, maybe possession kind of a thing?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, certainly it's tricky because, you know, we're, we're taking the, mm-hmm. the breadcrumbs that we have and we're, yeah. we're trying to make a, sure. you know, a case and understand what was happening. Mm-hmm. But, my my whole suggestion is that I am not persuaded that that evil malevolent beings could come down create this race of hybrids and that these hybrids would then have their own spirit and they would then be automatically doomed to go to hell or destruction right so what I understand God is that he creates us in his own image and he creates us with the ability to choose. We get to choose our destiny. Satan had the privilege of choosing his destiny. So to have, to think that an entire race of beings, uh, sentient beings would be able to be brought in, you know, procreated and then through no fault of their own, other than being born, they're going to be consigned to hell. It just doesn't, makes sense in my mind. So what I'm suggesting is that Satan who was, uh, was, um, you know, it talks about, you know, he, he's not clothed and that demons want to be clothed. They want to have a covering. Uh, so he lost his covering, you know, so I don't know that he's disembodied necessarily, but he's, he lost his covering. He lost something and it's painful. And so it somehow there's some comfort that Jesus talks about that de- Demons find in being inside of a body. And uh, so they're looking for a body. And so, this whole idea that I understand, and this is a point that uh, Tom Horn touches on and, and other researchers, but that basically these Nephilim were bio suits, right? These were, um, you know, meat suits, skin suits, whatever you want to call them, sure. that did not have a conscience, did not have a, a soul of their own, kind of like in the movie Avatar where they're able to create this, this uh, alien body, and then it's inhabited by the, the, the human person, right? And, and so that's the basic idea, uh, is that he wanted to create something that, that he and other uh, fallen angels could then, not, not just possess, but they could, uh, they could inhabit, and they could live in, and they could rightfully claim this is my body. Uh, so that's that's the basic idea there.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's you know, there's a lot of um, you know, I shouldn't say stigma, but there's a lot of people that question the whole Genesis six and thing, and they, you know, how could that be actual offspring and this and maybe that's the lineage of, uh, oh, what's that, Seth or whatever. Seth. Yeah. And it's it just when you study, especially Second Temple literature the clarity you get of how they, they saw the world and how they understood the world back then, it gives uh, so much clarity to the issue of Genesis six of definitely being fallen angels and what happened there, perpetuating evil to the point where God had to literally destroy the world to save humanity. Now I mm-hmm. I don't forget it, it just, it, it sparked my memory, but there was a documentary I watched some years ago. I want to say it was history channel where they were looking at, um, old, uh, what, what am I talking about body or I should say skeletons probably from people trying to see if there was DNA in the, uh, or a different set of DNA in the ancient world. And I believe if I remember right, that they found a different sequence of DNA that they said is human ish, but it wasn't <laughs> like our modern human DNA. Uh, I don't know. Is that like
1: Neanderthals or something.
0: Well, it wasn't Neanderthal, but it was a lo- like an ancient, you know, ancient whatever. Okay. And it's it's sure. again, I should look it up because it's literally probably been ten years ago when I when I saw that material. But uh, it it sparks the memory that you know I think in the world that we live in today, we're so primed. Um, to start to see these things come to fruition. For instance, you know, we have the, the CRISPR-9 technology, the gene editing and, you know, gem- genetically modifying stuff. We just literally, what, a week and a half ago, the whole monkey-human uh, embryo thing right. that they were pulling off. I mean, literally, yeah. we're living in a time when that technology that seems to have existed in Genesis is kind of coming back and now they're talking about raising organs with human animal mixtures, cell stuff and mm-hmm. fusing that with human. I mean, right. we're there, like we're, we're in the middle of this <laughs> I know. and we don't even like, yeah. it doesn't, it just seems like, Oh, this is just science. You know, this is, this mm-hmm. is, well, who's inspiring this stuff? Like who, who, who is wanting this stuff to, to come to fruition? And then, uh, you mentioned, I don't know if it was you or not, strike my memory, but basically the Enlil was buried supposedly uh, under the Euphrates. Um, Gilgamesh, yeah. Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh. I'm sorry. Gilgamesh. Yeah. What mm-hmm. if, what if some of this stuff would start to come out, you know, and you would take DNA and you would try to revive that sort of thing. Like it's not beyond the scope of mm-hmm. feasibility in our world. You know in the next hundred years perhaps that some of this stuff could happen i mean they're talking about doing it to dinosaurs to woolly mammoths.
1: oh yeah uh, you know yeah they're trying to do this i don't think we need 100 years (laughs) i don't think we need 100 years i mean it's it's happening at breakneck speed you know there was an article that came out in 2019 about a man named chris out of reno nevada he was uh he had leukemia and so he got a bone marrow transplant from a donor in germany and uh so he had some friends that were working at a, uh, at a, uh, a laboratory, uh, you know, like the, the crime scene investigation laboratories ran right? and, um, I'm, I'm blanking on the word there, but the, um, they, what they did is they, they took samples of his DNA before he got the bone marrow transplant and then after. And so shortly after they discovered that his blood cells were those of his donor. And then about three or four months later, they discovered that pretty much all of his DNA had the signature of his donor. And especially wow. what's amazing is that his his uh, sperm mm. was not his, it was that of his oh. donor. <laughs> and crazy. I, I'm like, okay, that's crazy, right? So, right. you know, so if, if he were to sire children, they would not technically be his. Mm. Right. The signature, the DNA signature would be that of the guy in Germany, Hmm. not not this guy, Chris. You know, so what that says to me is uh, we're playing with things we don't understand. Now, let me make it very clear. I'm not anti-science. I'm very pro-science. I mean, we have all kinds of horror movies about this. Right. I am legend. Right. The whole idea is that, you know, they were trying to fix to help humanity, but then they botched it. And then everybody. Uh, turned into a zombie, uh, you know, and
0: uh, yeah, I mean, I, it, yeah, there's so much. Well, like like you said, in 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 films and movies, and and even the scientific community, you know, basically saying, well, it's it's pretty much a guarantee that extraterrestrial life exists, mm-hmm. and people getting comfortable with that, people being taught that in schools, that you know, it's mm-hmm. pretty much a guarantee at some point, in, um, you know. Here before too long that we're going to encounter extraterrestrials, the conditioning is so obvious to me. Yeah. And um, when I was, you know, when we were studying this last winter, during, during you know, uh, studying prophecy, we basically, I mean, nobody knows for sure. There's a lot of speculation involved, but it just seems so clear to us as well that what you're dealing with in the last days, and I know your first book's, like, written about that, and I haven't read it. I apologize. I'll do that in the future. It's okay. But... um You know what you're dealing with is some kind of incarnation of satan because he Mm -hmm. gives him all the authority and all the power regardless of who i who he identifies with initially Mm -hmm. so initially he could come from you know who knows like you know if you take daniel you know 11 or whatever you could take king of the north that kind of imagery or whatever or daniel eight you could say the east west that whole that whole stuff but regardless of that he is the ultimate. Um, he's the ultimate, I guess, offspring you would say of Satan himself. And I personally believe, and this is just my opinion, that really what he's fighting over, his ultimate objective, is one final play for the Davidic throne. Um, it's why he centers around Jerusalem. It's why he's interested in Jerusalem. Why he's interested in the temple is because it is the it's the last place that he might be able to, like, literally, you know, if you believe in the coming Messianic era, okay, the thousand mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. Uh, where he rolls the dice and goes for it. Mm-hmm. Time's short, he's thrown to earth, all right, rolls the dice, I'm going for it. He He's going for the throne. He wants to be known not only in his own title, but he wants to be known as the God of Israel um, along those lines. Now, I understand there's some complexities there, but I, sure. I, I see that at least – In part, that's the goal. Yeah. Um, And then you, you know, I picked up on the imagery that you had as far as uh, the Nimrod connection. I mean, Nimrod, so a lot of people look to like Antiochus or Antiochus Epiphanes as being a type and shadow of the Antichrist. Frankly, I think Nimrod is a far better candidate. Uh, When you brought that out, it was just like, that makes a lot of sense to me Um, that that he could totally be the, the type for that. So, all right, now we're back. I think we're good. So basically, you know, Paul in Thessalonians talks about the lawless one. And mm-hmm. it's a kind of an interesting term. Not that I'm an expert or a scholar, but it caught my attention. And a few weeks ago, I was going through the book of, uh, well, first Enoch, and it talks about lawless ones. Uh, of mm-hmm. course, it's a translation, not original. but this concept seems to have come from that. And, you know, we often think of Antiochus maybe as being a type of Antichrist, but you mentioned, you know, Nimrod, a resurrected Nimrod, a, the one who was, is not and uh, we'll be, I think, if there's...
1: If there's we'll ascend out of the abyss. Yeah, correct. yeah.
0: That, to me, makes a lot more sense because you have this connection to the activity of Satan, like Paul talks about in Second Thessalonians, activity of Satan. So when you know the mm-hmm. activity in the ancient world, all of a sudden it's, well, it's connected to the activity of Satan. And lawless ones, in the mind of a first century Jew, you're dealing with probably nephilim that sort of material in their minds more than you're dealing with an antiochus as bad as he was in their mm-hmm. minds they're thinking more further back
1: well it, it's certainly hard to say what they were thinking uh, in regards to that but what we do know is that um that nimrod became a gibor right so that is huge And there's so much packed into that little statement. First of all, the the first thing I understand is that Nimrod is not his given name. You know, Nimrod means let's rebel. What parents going to name their kid let's rebel? It doesn't make any sense. You know, I mean, even (laughs) even. Well, even evil parents want their kids to clean their room, you know. (laughs) So you can rebel against those people, not against me. All right? right. You know, so. And, and so what we find is that in, when we go back to Akkadian, we find that uh, Ninurta literally means Lord of the earth, right? So it's like, wow, you know? So then what happened is the Bible took that, it took that title, Ninurta, Lord of the earth, and said, no, you're not the Lord of the earth. You just think you are, but we're going to call you what you really are. But it, but what's so amazing is it maintained the same root letters. So when you think about Semitic languages, it's always about root letters. So it, it took the same root letters, Nin Urta, and it just took the, the N, the R, and the T, and then you can swap those out for a N, R, and a D, or a Nim Road. You can put it in. A, so the N and the M are the same, and then R and D, R and T, they're the same. So then it becomes Nimrod or Nimrod in the Bible. So now he's known as the rebel, but that's not his name. That's merely a title of what he's like, what he did, what his actions were like. He was the rebel. And this rebel became, he did not start this way, but he became a gibor. And when you look at that in the Septuagint, they translated as gigas. Gigas means giant. And it was very well understood what that word meant. This was a son of, earth and heaven. This was a hybrid. Uh, this was a demigod. And so he becomes this demigod. How does he become a demigod? Well, scripture doesn't tell us. It just says that he did it just says that he became a gibor. And so I went and I looked at uh, what Satan did with, with uh, Judas Iscariot is that it says that he entered him right? So he's, he's possessing Judas and now Judas still has uh, the, his right mind. He's got the faculties of his mind, but now Satan is controlling him. Mm-hmm. He's doing Satan's bidding. Why would he do this? And he's also known as a son of perdition. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. So, so what I would suggest, and this is also based on what we we're talking about before, where this guy, Chris from Reno, Nevada, that his DNA was transformed to that of his donor. I would suggest that what Satan did is that he overshadowed Nimrod. In other words, he possessed Nimrod. And if he were to possess him for a long enough time, and this is where I'm hypothesizing, but if he were to continue this, this, um, this relationship, that it's possible that Satan would be able to impart his DNA into Nimrod so that he somehow became a Gibor, right? Because he's known in the ancient world, this Ninurta, he is known as the son of Enlil, right? He is the 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 uh, the definitive son of Enlil. He's the one who is carrying the tablet of destinies given to him by his father, Enlil. And, you know, it's it's amazing because what we see in Revelation 13 is that, <clears throat> excuse me, is that the beast is going to have all of the uh, the power, the throne, and the authority of Satan. I'm convinced that Satan doesn't like to share, that he's quite selfish. I think that's kind of what he's known for, is being a bit selfish. Sure. And so, you know, for him to give his power, his throne, and his authority to somebody, mm, I don't think so. That doesn't happen every day. This is something very special. This is a very unique relationship where Satan still is the one pulling the strings, not the human that he's giving it to. And so what I would suggest is that Satan needed Nimrod and Nimrod basically believed the, the sales pitch. Hey, you'll become a God. You'll have all these powers. You'll live for a super long time. Yeah. You'll be known as the hero forever and ever. And someday, you know, I'll try to resurrect you or something like that. Um, you know, so I don't think you know Satan was too concerned about keeping his promises, but he was he was a a, um, a necessary uh, you know link in the chain for Satan to then have more direct control over the earth. Because when you were talking to Ninurta, you were talking to Enlil. There was really no, no. difference, even though there was a difference, but right. there was no qualitative difference. You were. You know, if you're talking to Ninurta, you're talking to Enlil, and and that's just how it was, and and but what's also amazing is that Enlil uh, then became known as he was also known as Martu, who was the god of the Amorites, and remember we were talking about his logogram that his logogram was bad, and that's what we found on that that inscription. Well, guess what? Uh, the was the logogram for Martu, god of the Amorites. Bad, right? It's that same symbol. So the scribes understood that we're dealing with the same entity. The same entity is the one who is behind these different gods. Oh, and what does this symbol mean? Well, it means death, right? That's kind of a big deal. Uh, It's related to the word Og, right? Og and Ug are the same. Um, I'm going to talk about something in volume three, which blow blows my mind, but uh, there's another relationship. But anyway, they're all related. So Martu, the god of the Amorites, is essentially Nimrod or Enlil, and they have the same logogram to prove it. Now, what's amazing is that around the same time where, uh, you know, Ninurta does his stuff and all this, well, guess who God calls out of that area? Abraham right? Get out of this place right. to a land that I'm going to show you. Right. And so then he goes and he, you know, so then God says, look, you know, know for certain that your descendants are going to be slaves. Uh, and in the fourth generation, I'll bring them back. Why? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I would argue that the iniquity of the Amorites was that they were becoming gods. They were becoming Giborim. They were becoming mighty ones. They were becoming these hybrids. And, you know, so Satan starts with Ninurta and then somehow he's able, either through a procreative process or through somehow an overshadowing process, he's able to pass on uh, this, this hybrid DNA to these other people. So that by the time the children of Israel come out of Egypt, they come back, to the promised land and Satan has a housewarming gift for them. Hey, surprise, you know, here's all these, these Amorites or, you know, because the Amorites became known as Nephilim. They became known as the, um, you know, as the giants. Was
0: it Anakim or not not necessarily? The Anakim,
1: exactly. Right. the Anakim, the Rephaim, these are all known as hybrids. And this is the housewarming gift that Satan left for them right? Because look, Satan, Satan doesn't know the future. I think he's probably playing four dimensional chess and he can, he can, he can make pretty good analyses of what's going on, but he does not know the future. He can only prognosticate what the future is going to be. Just like we don't really know the weather tomorrow, but we can make amazing models about the weather tomorrow. Right. And we only know the weather tomorrow, tomorrow, (laughs) then we know the weather, but Today we can, we can really prognosticate. So Satan can forecast what's going to happen. And so he's been forecasting, you know, as to what's happening. And he's like, Oh, you know, my nemesis, my arch enemy, God has now called this guy, Abraham, and he's going to take him to this place called Canaan. I know where that is. Um, No problem. I'll just overrun the place so that, you know, he cannot set up a beachhead there and we will do our thing. And that's what they did. And then God dealt with them uh, so much so that the, the Amorites God says in the book of Amos, he said, yet it was I who, uh, who destroyed the Amorites, whose height was like the cedars and whose strength was like the oaks. Mm, Well, a cedar tree is really tall, you know, even a, even a short cedar tree, you know, so uh, you know, they can get up to 80 feet. Uh, But God also likens the cedar tree to the, the tail of the, uh, behemoth, and I suggest that's probably the sauropod dinosaur, but um, the the this, the, the uh, diplodocus dinosaur, I should say, which had a tail of forty-six feet long, right? So we're somewhere in the in the ballpark of forty feet long, right? This these are huge, and God's like, I took care of the Amorites who were this tall, so this tells us that some pretty crazy stuff was going on. Also, you had the two king of the Amorites. One of them was Og, king of the Bashan. And so I talk about the term Bashan, which comes from Akkadian, which means, uh, which is Bashmu in Akkadian. And it means, <laughs> drum roll, snake dragon, right? You're like, wow, this is crazy. So, and that was one of the signs, or that was one of the, uh, the icons for Satan, for Enlil. And it's amazing how it all goes back to him. And it, we just happened to have found, I have to thank Derek Gilbert for this, but we found a, uh, a, a, a geoglyph in the land of Israel right next to the Gilgal Rephaim, which is a circle yeah. of the giants. Yeah. You know, so when you look at it from Google Earth, you can see this snake, this big geoglyph snake on the earth, and it's in that same vicinity as Bashan. It's in the land of Bashan. So Bashan means snake dragon. Right. And this is of course where Og was hanging out. Mount Hermon. This takes us back to Mount Hermon, where that was um that was kind of like the um, you know, the the, the headquarters uh for for Og and these other kings of death of the then the Rephaim and all this other stuff. So I mean it yeah, it blew my mind when I was just like, what? That's all connected? <laughs> crazy
0: you know the first time uh first this is of course 10 years ago and or 11 years ago when my dad's first trip to israel he went up to the golan heights and uh and this time we didn't really know a lot of this stuff you know we just we just weren't around the material and um but he made this comment when he was going through the golan heights he said there's something about this place that it must be that all wars that have ever existed have come out of this place. Like he just sensed a, I mean, it was kind of odd that he said it, but he just like, there's something about this place that all wars came out of this place somehow, that hmm. something something is up here or whatever, uh, that, yeah, he just said it just, I mean, it just sensed that. I mean, it just has this has this feel of death. That, hmm. you know, that he, wow. that he sensed and he, I remember him speaking that that was long before, you know, I really understood what was going on. Herman and even Bashan mm-hmm. meeting, you know, serpent and all that good stuff, uh, just didn't make the connections. I mean, so he wasn't speaking in, oh, you know, uh, having, knowing this saying, it he didn't know he just was driving through and it's just like, well, there's something going on up here. And uh, he sensed mm. that. And if you, you know, you realize Cesarea Philippi, even to this day, for me, if I go there, it just, I almost don't even want to go up there. It just.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh,
0: there's just a darkness there. You know, I've, yeah. of course, you go to the top of, I've been on top of Herman as well. But like when I go to Caesarea, sometimes I'll just send people just, you go up there and look, I just don't, I don't even know if I want to go up there. It just, Yeah it's just so much evil. So such a dark history. And really. The spirit Mm. that we see even working in in today with abortion, uh, et cetera, like it's just the same just bloodthirsty spirit that wants to kill off the offspring for the sake of, uh, of, of, of what do you want to call it? Fertility or, you know, Mm. choice or whatever it Mm. is. And it just, it's just such a, I don't know. I still, I just still feel that when I go to these places, but
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, Well, you know, it's ultimately the, the kingdom of self, it's ultimately the kingdom of self, right? That's what Satan's kingdom is all about. It's yeah. about me, 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 and uh, God's kingdom is about give. It's about others. It's about being a servant. You know, it's it's a huge contrast, and I, I kind of wove that through the entire book. You know, that we see this this contrast between the between these two kingdoms. Hmm. Satan was given everything. He was kind of like Joseph right. to to Pharaoh, right? right? Pharaoh's like, look. I'm still Pharaoh. You know, this is my throne, but beyond that, you're the boss, you know? And and that's essentially what God did is that he's like, look, I'm God. That's my throne, but I'm putting you in charge of it all, Satan. And Satan wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted to be the heir as well. He wanted everything for himself. And when he did that, he, he, he in a sense, lost everything, but he, he then gained it by usurping God's authority, by questioning God's authority, and then gaining the authority for himself. But here's what's amazing. And we kind of started this talk off, you know, talking about the Parthenon and everything, where you have these ancient gods, these ancient pagan gods, you know, they really did die at the cross. And the reason I believe they died is because... Jesus took back the authority that Satan had for some 4,000 years. He bought that back. And so even though, you know, Satan and the gang didn't go away, but they lost the authority that gave them rights over mankind. Mm -hmm. They lost that. Now he still has another game plan. Don't don't make no no mistake about that, but it's a different game plan now. He's had to alter it. And, and we've also, we kind of touched on what the antichrist or the beast is going to do. And I'm talking a lot about this in volume three, where, you know, the whole thing about the apostasy must happen before the son of perdition can come back. There's that term again, right? Yep. Well, that has to do with authority. And uh, so I, I get into that in the book, but what, you, what you'll see is that the beast has authority. He has authority, and that's the only way he can then, you know, stand up to God and blaspheme God and those who dwell in heaven is because he has authority once again. And with that authority, now God has told us it's not going to last very long, but we have the inside scoop, right? But he has to get authority in order to be able to battle God. Without authority, you can't battle God. There's no no, no chance at all. And, And so this is, this was the big game changer. I mean, we all know it that Jesus died for our sins and yep. hallelujah, right? right? But it's so much bigger than that. It's so much more at this cosmic huge level. You're like, oh yes, Jesus had to die. There's no way that he could have redeemed us aside from dying and then rising again. Some people, well, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Yep. Well, <laughs> You know, was it just for my little sins? Well, that's part of the story. It's part of the story. But there's a much bigger story to understand. So my responsibility as as an individual is to uh, confess my sins, repent of them, and acknowledge that what he did on the cross was sufficient to save me. So hallelujah for that. But it has so, you know, it's just so much bigger. The implications are Cosmic when we look at this. And this is this huge battle between God and Satan. And it's not over. Satan's not going down without a fight. He is going to fight tooth and nail to the bitter end. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll be talking about that in Corrupting Image, Volume 3.
0: That's awesome. Well, we're almost out of time here. Uh, I don't want to hold you uh, longer than need be here. But uh, give us a little bit of just some references. I know you have so you have a website, books, and all that sort of So just give us some information about your ministry, etc., Uh, before we wrap this up
1: yeah so you can go to douglashamp.com you can learn more about me uh, my i think all of my books are there Uh, i put pretty much everything as articles on my website so if you want to just uh, poke around you can see it all there Uh, if people are interested they can get the book Uh, it's on my website as an ebook it's also available at amazon if they want to get the uh, paperback or the kindle version so corrupting the image volume two Uh, If they want to get volume one, I would encourage that, of course. I think that really sets the foundation. Um, And then I'm the pastor of the Way Congregation in Lakewood, Colorado. And so if people would like to join us, we'd love to have them. Uh, Every Saturday we meet at 1030 a.m. for worship, and then we start the teaching around 1115. And um, so it's messianic flavor, and uh, I teach through the Bible. Uh, you know, from Genesis to Revelation. I love the whole thing. I love Yeshua. I love Jesus. And um, yeah, so that's that's pretty much it. So then go to WakeCongregation.com for more information about that. Or then go to my YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Doug Hamp. And they can find my videos there.
0: That's awesome. And I would encourage you guys. I've been having a lot of fun listening to the roundtable, uh, prophecy roundtable that you've been put, putting out there. And uh, John, uh, John, is it John Haller? John Haller. So he's yeah. a fellow Ohioan. So, you know, he, he okay. literally is about probably an hour and a half from where I live. So I, some someday I might have to trying to meet up with him sometime. It'd be a fun conversation. So anyway, you know, go guys.
1: <laughs> anyway. Very cool.
0: Thank you so much uh, for the time, for taking the time to do this. I know, you, like I said, you're busy. My dad being a pastor, I understand how challenging it can be to take time and do some of these things. So I just thank you and bless you for, for, uh, for doing that. So
1: uh, thank you. My pleasure to be here.
0: Thanks again for watching. I hope you enjoyed this show. I certainly did. And, um, something that I think all of us can take away, uh, from all of this is when we study prophecy, look, there's always elements that we don't understand. We don't see the full picture. God, he sees the full picture. And in his time, he will reveal to us what his plans are fully. But until then prophecy does, uh, does shine as a light in a dark place so that we are not, Um, left in darkness, not knowing what is happening. And so when we have uh, bits and pieces like this, I mean, prophecy is this beautiful mosaic that God puts together and bits and pieces that we get, um, I think makes such a huge difference to us seeing ultimately the victory that Jesus will have when he returns and comes back, and I I think for us it gives us hope that God has not forgotten us, not forsaken us, but that He has a process, and there is a process to this, and in due time He will certainly overcome uh, the evil one, and we will be resurrected and uh, live the lives that God really wanted us to live from the beginning. So that's it for this program. I invite you to join us for more programs. And uh, if you have any comments or whatever, I'd be happy to uh, reply to those. Again, keep them cordial, keep them civil. And uh, if you want to write to me, you can also uh, contact me through the website. So blessings to you and have a good one.